Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students. It's filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there, I found podcast guests there, and even made in-person friends, all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I like to have my guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? I'm Richard Wade Morgan, and I'm a queer multidisciplinary visual designer in Atlanta, Georgia. And yeah. Oh, I like it. Short and to the point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's more. I, I just Please. Yeah, let's do more. Uh, well, I currently work in advertising, and I work at the oldest independent ad agency in Atlanta called Morrison, where I lead creative on a few accounts. I love anything to do with indie music, queer culture, and antiquities. antiquities. I also love, yeah, antiquities. I'm a big history buff, and I have a minor in art history, and I just got that when I was in art school, and it's kind of stuck me ever since. <laughs> but throughout my work, I, I love championing authenticity, accessibility, and was recently dubbed uh, the Dolly Parton of graphic design by my best friend, which I've started raising as my banner recently. So. You know, I saw that in your Twitter bio, and I was curious if you would expand on that for, you know, there may be one or two people left on the planet that don't know who Dolly Parton is. So, <laughs> yeah, I kind of I kind of thought this might come up. My, my best friend, Sarah, Sarah Lawrence, she's another great Atlanta designer. Uh, we were in school together at Georgia. Uh, she dubbed me that. And my first instinct was to ask her, like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But why particularly? And she's like, one, you're Southern as fuck. And two, <laughs> and, and two, you just know how to do a lot of shit and you can pick it up really quickly and you appreciate how it flows into its environment around you, you know, its uses. You don't ever discredit anything. Because Dolly Parton knows how to play every single instrument on this earth pretty much. And she has value and a place for everything. And it's just it's very open, accepting, and very queer. And it's totally me. I love it. What a great way to describe yourself. Yeah, I've been searching for something the moniker myself like that for a while and out of the blue it just happened and just to go back to a couple basics do you go by richard richard wade or do you want people to literally say richard wade morgan every time they address you this has actually come up for debate many times in my career because uh someone told me i have a great three-part name you do i've been gone by richard my whole life and after i came out you know it kind of felt like all right well i don't feel like a richard anymore like a lot of my friends at the time started just calling me Wade because we were in art school together and they were a really good form of weird. They were just like, Richard's too long to say, so I'm just going to call you Wade. And I said, okay. And so I started going by Wade for a while. And then when I went to the professional world fully, they were just like, okay, Richard Wade Morgan, we have another Richard here. So we're going to call you Richard Wade Morgan. I said, great. I feel famous. And I, my vanity knows no bounds, honey. So we're... <laughs> So Richard Wade Morgan is what a lot of people call me. 
it's and my my studio is named Studio Wave, and I just treat it like a like it it removes itself from my name, mm-hmm. so I can just let that be its own separate entity in the universe. And so if if I if I go one direction with my personal life or with my artwork or my design, like Studio Wave can just you know, not that I'm gonna do anything bad. I I don't intend to rob a bank anytime soon, but you know, like it's 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 just you know I like the separation. I like the separation. And what pronouns do you use? I am he him. Thank you for asking. So you mentioned art school twice, and you said Georgia. Can you talk a little bit about where you went to art school? Uh, the University of Georgia in Athens has a really good like state art school called Lamar Dodd School of Art. And it's, it's ranked nationally in several MFA programs. But the one thing that it's known for nationally is its foundations program. It's, it's specialities, you know, they're, they're pretty average. It's, it's good. I got a good education there. I, I should really say that better. I got a great education there. Go dogs. Uh, my, any of my professors listening to me, I love you to pieces. And, and it was, it was a really well-rounded education. I would, I would highly encourage state art schools and state-run design schools. I mean, when they, people say, oh, liberal arts education is all the time, it doesn't really make any money, but it, it gives you a foundation. I, I've noticed in my career that I have a foundation in art and studies that a lot of my peers do not have, especially when it comes to like people in UX, web products, all of, all of the new, new media age professions. Like I, I'm kind of kind of out on a branch on my own, <laughs> there, there's some positives and negatives to that. Now, I went to art school as well, but I went to art school for glass blowing and took one singular design course for one semester while I was there. So I think right behind the should designers code debate, there's the should designers go to design school debate, which I have lots of opinions on, but I'm curious, and I'm sure our listeners are more curious about what your opinions are on that. Did you go to school for graphic design? Yes, I got my BFA in graphic design there. And I I actually got that out of fear that I wouldn't, you know, have a career or have an ability to feed myself. And that was mostly said by my parents, which out of their hearts, they were trying to do the best thing. But, you know, I kind of wish I had a little more encouragement and positivity in that. Uh, so a, a commercial art degree made the most sense for me to do. And I didn't even know about graphic design until I was already a sophomore in college. Like I, I went to public school in South Georgia, uh, right outside Savannah in a place called Effingham County. There was one computer arts class that was called graphic design that I never really understood what it was. And that was the first thing that told me about the accessibility of what design education and the design profession is, is, and how privileged it is. It is a privilege to know what this profession is and what we do and the ability to go to school for it. Like, for example, I teach part-time occasionally at the Creative Circus, which is a private portfolio school here in Atlanta. It's kind of like Portfolio Center, which is now Miami Ad School at Portfolio Center, which is kind of like SCAD, which is kind of like School of Visual Arts, and they're all private. They are accredited, but there, there's some broader questions that I ask constantly. It's like, okay, how does this affect 
underrepresented people in this country? And why is this entire field like majority straight and white? Oh, 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 there, there's the answer. There's the answer. And, and money is a thing. There's, there's a lot of gatekeeping to it. And, and, you know, these schools, a lot of these schools are very good. Like you can, you know, I, I champion state schools all the time. You know, Georgia State, Spelman here in Atlanta, they have a wonderful design program. I don't know if anyone knew that, but Spelman College, like, ah, oh, those students are amazing. Uh, University of Georgia, Georgia Southern, like, and if you really look into it, there's, there really is pretty much a, a good variety of quality education out there. But I personally, if, if it were my kid, I, I would be like, no, go to a state school, uh, get your in-state tuition scholarship. Uh, just don't, don't dance with $200,000 in debt. Unfortunately comes with school these days. <laughs> I know, right? It, it's, it's ridiculous. And even state schools are, uh, my mom was a public school teacher for 46 years of her life. And so I, I got a good firsthand shot at how horrible the United States college system is because a lot of the state schools are run by uh, boards of regents that are unelected bodies that are independent, that get to make up their own rules and do not give themselves limits. So no one oversees them. So when they say tuition has risen 1400% since 2000, it's because the board, boards of regents Albeit, I'm sure they're making adjustments to the costs of operations nowadays, but that that's where that cost is coming from. Uh, the University of Georgia's annual budget for the Athens campus alone in the state of Georgia is well over $1 billion for Whoa. one year. One year. That's um that's pretty astounding. It's uh if, if you ever want to make yourself really really angry, uh, but also at the same time, really really intrigued about public education in America, just just look at what your state school uh, tuition rates are and what scholarships they offer for. And I will say too, I have to acknowledge my privilege on that here. Uh, I did go on the Hope Scholarship at University of Georgia, which is an in-state scholarship that if you make A's in high school, or at least when I was in high school, it was a B plus and above, they waived your tuition for all state schools. So I, I was very, very privileged to have a good education in a public school to go there. A lot of my friends did not. And that's, yeah, it's, it's very it's very contentious, and I think it should be free for everyone. Yeah, agreed. So let's go back to what you're up to now. So you're working at Morrison, which you said is the oldest ad agency in Georgia. Is that correct? We could say technically, yeah, the whole state of Georgia. It is the oldest independent ad agency. Uh, it has not been bought out or is under any holding group. It is still owned by the Morrison family, and it is 34 years strong. And what is your role there? What are you up to? What are you doing? Technically, my title is designer there, but uh, it's very much the other end of the spectrum. I'm a very senior level designer, occasionally part-time art director, and I work on several accounts that range from uh, Sig Block Group, which is a packaging company from Europe that is from Germany, State Bank that was that was originally State Bank, Cadence Bank. Let's see, Tosca is a plastic RPC packaging company of ours. 
that we work with and Morrison's internal brand that I help guide and evolve. And <laughs> I, this, this one's, this one will shock some people. And especially as a, as a gay, uh, it's, it's fun to say, but Hooters, I, I lead the creative for the national account of Hooters and it's, uh, it's, it's very, it's very, it's very interesting. So yeah, I, I, I do that there and work with a very, very small team of, uh, one other art director, uh, production designer, few project managers, and one creative director. And we, we compete nationally and internationally with holding company groups, of everyone from WPP and Qualcomm. And so how many people does that make your team? Gabby is social, Kyle, Jay Bry, Devin, our copywriter, about six, five to six of us in total. Yeah. I like the shout outs that everyone got. <laughs> Oh, I have to. I shout out Morrison. If y'all listen to this, I love y'all to pieces. Uh, Devin, Gabby, I love her to pieces. Um, I said that twice now. Uh, so it's me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeff Bell, Jeff Bryant, Kyle Lewis. They're, they're a wonderful little family and we get shit done. Can you share a bit about what your typical workday looks like? Yes. Well, in, in the true Dolly Parton fashion, uh, just take the first line of nine to five where you roll out of bed and you go into the kitchen. Uh, the, that's exactly how I do it. I, I have to caffeinate two cups at least. Normally I'm a one cup person, but it's because of COVID and, you know, working from home. It's not like you have a routine anymore. Were you working from home before coronavirus? Ooh, yes, I was. I always found a way to make my home office and studio uh, a thing wherever I live. I always had my, for, for a long time, I had a desktop iMac to conduce that. And I, I always had a, like the simple Ikea drafting table sort of desk with that on top of it. And it's almost always right next to my bed. Thankfully, I don't do that now because I'm able to just separate office from bedroom. But uh, yeah, it, it always was a thing for me. I always had a plant. I always had Christmas lights. It, you have to make your cave. And if you don't make your cave, you are just going to hate yourself working. So you may as well enjoy your time while you have your own studio that you have to work in. So it's kind of shifted from, okay, I need to commute into the office and have a cup of coffee. And then finally, after two or three hours, I can start my day. Uh, now it's like, okay, I'm waking up 30 minutes before I have to be on my stand-up call and <laughs> kind of struggling getting two cups of coffee, but we're doing our best. Gonna, we're not going to fault ourselves. We're in a pandemic. And then I sit down, grab my sketchbook, check my immediate slacks and emails, any form of brief that was thrown to me, and have my to-dos laid out for the day in base camp. And then I jump into my stand-up. And where do those briefs normally come from? The, the strategy department, strategy, project management. My creative director's already had a hand in it. And it eventually makes its pipeline, way down the pipeline to me. So there's a lot of people inside Morrison between you and person of contact at Hooters, or do you have direct contact with the clients uh, as you're developing your work? You know, there's some debate around this to, to, to what a lot of people prefer in the industry. And I'm glad you asked this question because it can make or break creative work at, in different companies. With Hooters being a fast-paced retail giant, they, they do so much business. They do a lot more business than people think. Our, our project managers and strategy are the first person contacts. And at Morrison, we personally don't put creative indirect contact 
interact like with the client. Like we're definitely friends with them, LinkedIn friends. Like if they have a suggestion or something, or if they want to tweak something occasionally, they'll, they'll slack us and be like, oh yeah, 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 sure. Can't get a hold of Paige. Uh, I'll, I'll ask her. Paige is my project manager. Shout out Paige. I love you. It's, that's the way that it operates more often. It's a good separation and it's, we have so much to focus on because we're a small team. So it's, it's just one more thing off that I don't have to balance on my plate. Yeah, I think that sounds really nice as someone that runs a little studio where I have to do sort of all the client communications for the work that I do. It, it sounds kind of nice to have a layer there so that someone can focus the feedback and information to you so you can probably get more work done. It's absolutely the first time in my career of being here that I've ever had that because Mor- Morrison is actually my, let's see, I've been practicing for nine, 10 years now since school. Morrison's my first agency I've ever worked in. And this is the first time I've had that separation to where I didn't have to worry about, okay, do I need to tweak this strategy? Do I have to worry about meeting budget on this? Okay, so I can just head down and do my creative. That's great. So uh, I'm really glad you brought that up. I, of course, doing research for this episode, have read your whole work history. But for the listeners, can you talk a little bit? Did you freelance or were you in-house before moving to an agency and Maybe talk about making that switch, why you made that decision. Is it right for everybody? A lot of people talk about like those three like freelance agency in-house. And, and when you're starting a design career, it's like, which is right for me? How do I make that decision? What do I do? Yeah, that's a really good question. I The way that I tell my students when they ask me, because a lot of them just want to do freelance and do their own thing. And I'm like, well, okay, that's great. I want to support you in the best way possible. Do you know that this industry is a business? You you need to know the harsh, like evils of this business. Nothing exists without money. It, it's it's really sad, and I hate to admit it to a lot of people, but it's a lot of this industry doesn't exist without funding. If you're a nonprofit, without investors, if you're a startup or um, someone something of that nature, or without paying clients as an agency. So if you have a pipeline of that and you can be freelance already and you've understood it and you have a grasp on it and you know how to run a business like setting up your LLC and you know how to market yourself, great. If you don't, that's okay. Go work someplace, preferably if you can, at a place that you admire or want to learn from. That way you can get the added benefit of mentorship and then get your ass kicked. Like it's everyone gets their ass kicked, no matter, no matter who you are, because you learn, you fall down and the industry is, I, I can speak mostly to the ad industry. It, it'll, it'll run you ragged and you learn really quickly how to balance yourself and how to cut out the unnecessary stuff and how to work with it. That being said, uh, it, it really does depend sometimes on your instruction, your education. And while I love the University of Georgia, uh, I have to be real. I don't think that they properly prepared me for a business entry into the design world. It was mostly still in 2011 about pretty much like a print and concept portfolio school. Uh, there was hardly any resume writing helping. Uh, LinkedIn was brand new. Uh, we, we still applied to jobs by calling on the phone or just sending an email. And it being so far removed from Atlanta, it didn't have any connections to the business world there. So I, I kind of 
had to fight tooth and nail to get into somewhere. And that was just calling my network that I knew from Georgia and an old classmate of mine who had graduated two semesters ahead of me. Her name's Samira Kushnud, and she works at Facebook as a designer there now. Uh, she gave me my first break at CNN in the on-air production department. And so she got me an interview and luckily they liked me. And I was so excited. Someone liked me. Um, and I was hired on. Uh, I was freelance part-time. The way they classified it was weird, but part-time at CNN and their online on-air production department for about three and a, three, three and a half years. And that was my start. And I, I really did want to freelance when I got out of school because I was considering going back to grad school. I was making so much art and independent design work. So it was great to have a part-time gig with a big brand that could barely pay the bills, <laughs> you know, uh, and I could also do my independent work at the same time. So I, I made it work, uh, picking up some occasional freelance every now and then through connections that I was building. And the, the, the number one thing that I did that helped my career the most was I net, networked like a motherfucker. I, I found the local AIGA chapter, which is the American Institute of Graphic Arts. And the, the chapter in Atlanta at that time was, it was, it was existent and it was doing some occasional things, but not really at its full capacity. You know, people have thoughts and feelings about AIGA and there's been great debate, great public expressing of what AIGA is and what it's become and what it can do. And uh, for the record, I love the leadership that's there currently. Ashley Axios is a wonderful presidential choice for them, and I'm excited to see where they go. I, I literally went to the president, David Laufer, and said, hi, how can I get a job through this organization? Because I want a job. I want like the one that I was struggling to get because I didn't know how to make my portfolio or I didn't know how to write a resume. And he's like, oh, well, I can help you on this. Uh, do you want to also run our happy hours, our networking. And so I took what I learned at the number one party school in the nation and I applied it to practical practice, which is I know how to drink. <laughs> and I know others like to drink too. If, if you didn't like to drink, that's okay. Cool, come along, we're fun anyway. Uh, so I started the happy hours in Atlanta with AIGA and met as many studio owners as possible and networked like my ass off. and. Eventually, I got another job through that networking with Cox Media Group, uh, which was a terrible job and a terrible choice for me. It's actually a long, contentious story about that includes my coming out and how it really affected my career trajectory. I had actually come out in 2013 when I was just starting and I was at CNN. And then when I was gunning to get like a real like full-time job somewhere because CNN wasn't going to hire me full-time. They just kept me part-time and cycling. I, I was like, okay, well, I have a boyfriend for the first time and I'm going to just establish it, come out to my parents and my family and do all that. And what I thought would happen happened. There was complete familiar rejection uh, from my immediate family. It was very mentally taxing, uh, uh, confidence taxing. It was it shot me into a panic mode to where I needed to find something very fast uh, because I would not be able to maintain uh, my creative style for what I was doing unless I, and I would be thrown out of the family and I wouldn't have any like person to fall on should I have broken my leg. 
and I needed to get like a $3,000 hospital bill paid for, which it's a little frightening, especially coming from a family that like, you know, that they have loved you ever since you were born and stuff. And to completely feel that all queer people that have experienced familial rejection understand it. It's very emotionally abusive. And it, it threw me into a spiral to go to get a full-time job anywhere. I just needed it. I needed benefits. I needed a salary. I needed like a 401k, something to just give me stability and stop chasing my dream. And I did. And that was a desperate move to go work at uh, Cox Media Group with the local newspaper here, the AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I was doing everything from mostly print to hand coding emails <laughs> and landing pages, which was a little archaic for the time, but it was it was really good education into uh, code. And then I finally got aggravated enough with it that I tapped back into my network. And after a bit of therapy and gaining my footing again, I got a few contracts at some big agencies like uh, Second Story and Vivian Nitro, uh, just doing some light experience design work and some visual design for them. And so I took the chance and quit the AJC and said, all right, I'm going to be happy and my mental health is first. And that was great. And I was living with a family at the time that uh, was being very gracious and charging me very low rent for their spare bedroom. And it was, it was like a personal time to heal. And I found some more footing in a few other agencies. And eventually I started doing side projects that got some national attention that gave me a little bit more solid ground to stand on in terms of getting more freelance work. And I, I technically freelanced for like, like from 2015 all the way to 2017, 20, end of 2017. And so it was just, it was one, it was the next rock after another. Okay, where am I going to step next? So it was a very stressful time. But after that, I, I was kind of trying, I was honestly trying to hawk some more freelance work from one of my contacts, uh, Katie, who worked at this experience design studio in Atlanta. And she said, hey, I love you, but we don't have anything right now. And it's the dead of summer. Uh, how about you go talk to Morrison? Uh, my friend Price over there, uh, Price Jackson, she is probably looking for someone new. And I went in to talk and thought I was just going to hawk some more freelance. I'm just saying, hey, girl, you got anything? I can do those banner ads for you. I'm at low rates and all this. But we talked for four hours and it it was literally like a miracle. It was very, very lucky. They weren't looking for anyone and I was, wasn't looking for anyone. And we kind of clicked and they said, do you just want to come on board? And I said, yeah, freelancing is exhausting and I'm terrible at it. And I've been very, 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 very lucky. And my luck has run out. So yes. And that's where I've been ever since. It's, it's given me more stable, solid ground. And uh, it's, it's a very, as much as I think it's an uncommon career path, I think that's more common than what people believe. Design as an industry is gatekeepy as hell. It is very gatekeepy, no matter what part of design you're in. And you, you just have to find your own way to work around that. And there's, and there's a lot more resources out there now that you can use than what there was when I first started out. Long-winded answer, that is my career path. I really appreciate it. I, I'm so sorry what you had to go through when you came out, but I'm really glad that you were vulnerable with us and shared because I think anybody in the queer community is very familiar with that story of familial rejection. And I think that maybe someone out there hears your experience and it helps them with their own journey. So thanks for, for sharing. Yeah, I do want to get into 
your comment on gatekeeping because I agree with you a lot and I'd love to hear your advice, but maybe we could start with like a little bit easier, just like what's your advice for someone just starting out in our field? Just to repeat, every, everything is gatekept in our field, no matter what it is, no matter how nice it may seem, no matter how great of a nonprofit you think that that is that you want to work for, there is some gatekeeping. No matter that tech companies that may be all shits and giggles, that looks absolutely joyous and has a bunch of queer employees that you want to work at, it is gatekept. And sometimes for good reasons, sometimes unnecessarily. And you need to understand that that is not a reflection of you. If you apply and you get rejected, it is not you. It is literally them. You just have to adjust your strategy to how you get your foot in the door. And there's lots of ways to do that. You should network like crazy. Oh, yeah. And learn learn how to write a little bit. Uh, I don't think enough designers get enough attention for writing skills. And John Hanawalt, who we both know, the founder of co-founder of Queer Design Club with Rebecca Brooker, uh, he he and his writing is just astounding. And I've, I've asked him several times, I was like, honey, can you please just look over one or two things I was writing? And he's a fantastic editor. So if you can if you can learn how to write basically, and have a friend that's an editor uh, that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. So that's my advice for people starting out. It's, again, long-winded. <laughs> no, I, I think that's great advice. And for those that haven't listened to the episode of Bezier with Rebecca Brooker, you should definitely listen to that one as well. Absolutely. She's great. What about for more senior people? I usually ask general, like, what's your advice for someone at your level? But maybe you could talk a little bit about how they can tear down some of the gatekeeping. Yeah, I think my, my only bit of advice for senior people is rooted in my own experience with Morrison and how I came on board there. Uh, when I came on board at Morrison, uh, just to give a little background, there was a different leadership at the time. And that leadership, some leadership, it's not the Morrison family. It was someone separate from the Morrison family that was, uh, I love Bob and Amanda. They're, they're the best bosses I've ever worked for. They're, they're very kind and very fair. Uh, there was someone else there that was causing some strife and high turnover rate, client angst and all of that. And it they left and it caused a big hole and there were some tumultuous times. And me coming in right before all that hit, it, I was kind of a risk because I just had a blank portfolio. None of these people had ever met me. None of these people knew anyone in my network and they took a risk on me. And they, they interviewed the hell out of me. I went through like four interviews, but I, I, I feel that they took a risk and a chance on me. And I've absolutely repaid that tenfold. And my advice to senior management is if you, if you have the chance to take a chance on someone, they may not be 50% the best fit for the job role that you're looking for, especially if they are not straight and white. Take, take the chance. People can learn on the job. You're not going to ever get anyone that fits the perfect foot of the bill for your job description. And you will have more loyal, in tune, and grateful, and just happy employees if you let someone who's hungry take a chance and prove it. There are lots of great aspects of our creative communities, but on the flip side, there are 
also a lot of bad things. There's ableism, homophobia, transphobia, there's racism, there's white supremacy. We could go on and on with all the isms. What are your thoughts on the biggest bigotry in our industry? How do you combat it? How do you live in it? How do you work in it? And what are your experiences? Yeah, first thing I would say, it's definitely more rampant than what you think. Like if anyone has an idea of what they think, that albeism, racism, bigotry, white supremacy is in the design industry, double that at least. I, I have to ask myself numerous times for the years that I, if whenever I've been employed somewhere, everywhere that I've been employed, I, I've tried to make an effort to say, okay, you know, I'm only gonna, if we're gonna hire someone, I'm only gonna push portfolios of people of color or people who are queer or women or anything. I'm gonna make an actual effort. And a lot of the times those just get lost. And especially at CNN when I was trying to make some waves there with that, especially as just a freelancer part-timer to where it's like, oh, come on, the role the role that I'm in, it's like any, anyone can really do this role. It's just Photoshopping graphics for TV to go to air in like 10 or 15 minutes. Like take this person that is like, not white and still it, it didn't make a difference. Like they didn't, they didn't consider it. Uh, so I would say a tip for this is to consume, share and pay for content created by people who are not properly represented in your community. And don't be afraid to ask where to find them. Uh, you can ask on Twitter and if you want to know I really do not know where I can find uh, illustrators of color. You will absolutely be responded with like, like 50 people will come out of the woodwork and say, here's a resource for this. Here's this great person I know. Here's this, here's this. There's no excuse. You can absolutely find diverse talent. It exists and fill your pipelines with them. Like even if you know that they probably don't fit the job, they'll fill your pipeline, put them in. You can do that. That's you trying to trying at least, you know, I do know that's great advice. I like that you're trying to like enable the people that are hiring managers and in senior positions to do something. Who is one person that the listeners should know about? I think people should know about my local Atlanta queer publication called Lucy Magazine. It is a wonderful amalgamation of a, a zine print publication an online web presence with great writing and con contributing and event organization for queer nightlife. Uh, they put out a lot of good content. They get national names for their uh, zine releases all the time. Shout out to Wizzy Magazine. They've, they've just, they were the first place in Atlanta that I felt really queer with. And they, I, I first went to their prom like years ago. They do Wussy prom. And before prom, they have like Wussy picture day at Mary's, which is the best gay bar in, it, in America, by the way. Mary's in East Atlanta. I'm going to claim that. If anyone wants to fight me, come to Mary's in East Atlanta. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Wussy Magazine, they're, they're great. And their, their Twitter and their Instagram are just absolutely hilarious. It makes you, makes you want to want to see another day. Okay, I love that. I'm going to definitely link to Wussy Magazine in several forms in the show notes. And also, what a great recommendation on a gay bar in America. Yeah, I, I don't know what can of worms I've opened with uh, when other people come for me for trying to claim the greatest gay bar in America. But 
Mary's is Mary's is pretty hard to beat. I think that's a fun competition for queer designers to have. I think us arguing over the best queer spots is going to be kind of a fun conversation. Oh, friendly Jeff. Friendly Jeff. The, the claws will come out and the nails will come off, but you know. What book do you think everyone should read? This book by Ruby Tando, who is a who was a great British Bake Off finalist called Eat Up. And Eat Up is her uh, a collection of writings about being comfortable with just loving food and loving what you eat, regardless of what it is, and finding joy in even like a Cadbury cream egg and the perfect time to eat it, and that you shouldn't let anyone shame you into what you're eating. And she also talks about how the whole eventually in like her food writing online is fantastic, by the way, to read everything by Ruby Tando. She, she talks about how the socioeconomic politics around the whole organic food movement and how microwave dinners get shit on. But, you know, that's a very vital, important resource for a lot of like poor people. And so what's the language that we use around talking about organic food? And hopefully we're not like shitting on the poor when we talk about that, uh, because everyone's got to eat. And so you may as well get in touch with your food side. And it's, it was a very therapeutic book and I still have it on my nightstand. So Eat Up by Ruby Tando. I think that's a great recommendation. And I think it like speaks to a different type of gatekeeping to connect back to what you were saying. So I'm definitely going to read that one. And it will also be linked in the show notes. I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So on this show, we share the profits with our advertisers with all of our guests. Are there other ways the listeners can support you? I, I would love to share my Venmo, but I don't feel comfortable doing so. Uh, being as someone who already has enough, and I would like to take the opportunity to just promote a group that I think is doing critical work right now, especially in the Atlanta area. I've donated to them before. They are a homeless queer youth shelter in Atlanta called Lost and Found Youth. And they, they do very critical on-the-ground work with their shelter. Uh, there, there are many ways that you can donate to them. You can, you can go to their Amazon wish list and buy things directly for the youth that are in that shelter, that are in their program. Because they just, they need things like deodorant and underwear. It's like critical things that, you know, that, have, that give you dignity. And if you want to just donate directly to them, you can go to their website, uh, www.com. LNFY.org. That's the abbreviation for Lost and Found Youth. And you can donate there if you want. Fantastic. Also, will be in the show notes. Thank you. Where is the best place for people to find you? You can find me everywhere as at Studio Wade on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my channels are completely different. Like Instagram is more of my artwork and curated, but Twitter I treat like a live journal and I just speak my mind like there's no tomorrow so come along for the ride it's a lot of fun i can endorse that i follow you on twitter and that's that's how i've gotten to know you and you're also a very online person i guess i would say very online it's it's, it's how it's how i cope <laughs> richard wade morgan thank you for being on bezier is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up i i hope you are all coping well with our current crisis and you know Wear a mask, stay six feet apart. You're, you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for other people and especially the elderly people in our nursing homes. So, you know, stay safe out there and keep baking. 
Bezier is a design interview podcast amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bezier, please email us at inquiry at zoct.studio. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Z-A-C-H-T dot studio.